Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by David Stokes, Elias Chapellis, and Avery Frank from Show Me Institute. Elias, this week uh, there was meant to be action in Jefferson City. It was the veto session. Before we get to what actually happened, I'd like you to just theoretically, what is a veto session for? How is it supposed to go? So every year the Constitution basically provides that after the legislative session's done and the governor has his period to look at bills, um, everything the legislature passed, um, that you know he can veto those, or in the budget he can issue line item vetoes. The legislature comes back in September and gets a chance to override those. And uh, normally there is you know some sort of action. There was a ton of action when uh, Governor Nixon was in office. Um, and this year there were um, over 200 line item vetoes in the budget, totaling over $500 million. So there was a lot of discussion that, you know, some of these items, uh, you know, they were obviously priorities enough of the legislature for them to pass them. So there was some, you know, belief that these things could be getting overturned, especially because there was a lot of focus on infrastructure, public safety, stuff like that. But as you mentioned, uh, not much action this year. So is that, I mean, I know there were rumors and, and different legislatures from around, or legislators from around the state were saying, I'm going to go and we'll try and get this funding for our school district or this funding for our highway project. But going into this, did you expect much to happen? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, you know, one of the issues with um, trying to over override these line item vetoes is that uh, a lot of these projects that the governor vetoed are for very small um, parts of Missouri. And so when these things don't have statewide impacts, which is also part of the reason why we have, you know, the biggest budget in state history is because there's a lot of money going to, you know, very specific programs or projects, parts of the state that don't really have statewide impact. It's really hard for the legislature to, you know, necessarily put together a coalition to override these things just because it doesn't impact so many people. Now, there were a few, you know, there were a few things that uh, the governor vetoed that I do think, you know, quite a few people would believe they have statewide impact, you know, whether that is um, improving Interstate 44 around Springfield, uh, pay raises for the highway patrol, stuff like that. Uh, Those, you know, I think a lot of people agree that that has some statewide impact. And so those were the areas where there was potentially a chance for um, override. But as we've seen in uh, the past year or so, the, uh, the House and the Senate couldn't come to agreement on those things. Yes, and, and I think that the governor's, perhaps Elias disagrees, I think that the governor's line item vetoes in the budget were, were well done and, and, and positive, and I'm glad they weren't overridden. I, I wish the governor would have vetoed more things generally from the session, you know, SB 190 with senior property tax cuts and entertainment tax credit bills, uh, filled the film tax credit. Those have been three things that should have been vetoed, and I, I wish we'd seen an, a veto override attempt on them uh, this week, but we did not because he, he signed those. Well, just, you know, just to kind of add on to that, I, you know, the budget is so big, and so, you know, I, uh, the Senate added tons of stuff to the budget uh, that even the House didn't approve, and so that's how you got to all the spending, and so, you know, I'm generally supportive of almost everything that will shrink the size of the budget, especially when these are so much money going to projects that don't really have statewide impact. Um, but also what we saw was, you know, what I think is kind of a wrong approach on some of the ways the state is even, you know, applying spending. So, you know, there is this discussion of, well, 
is the legislature going to override the uh, veto on pay raises for the highway patrol? It's like, well, in theory, you know, more money for, you know, public safety, good, you know, good idea, whatever. Well, the state's been just issuing blanket pay raises to um, every state employee for the past uh, couple of years. And so what you're seeing is just a ton of money going to necessarily state jobs that don't necessarily, um, you know, need pay raises, but you have a shortage of highway patrolmen where, you know, in my opinion, which I've said before, I think it would have been much better for the state to be focusing pay raises in certain areas. And so while the highway patrol will still be getting a pay raise because every state employee did, they won't be getting the focus pay raise. Um, and, you know, so I think the state has been spending a lot of money in areas where they could have done a better job. And I'm hoping that we see a better um, effort going into the next couple of years. And so do you think it's a case this year specifically where there's a lot of federal money floating around? We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. There's been uh, these bills at the federal level. So even if the governor vetoed funding, for example, the I-44 project, that there's still a chance that there'll be federal infrastructure dollars coming in. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Governor Parson vetoed the funding for it. So the project's dead. Right. That's my understanding, especially on the um, or specifically on the I-44 project. Uh, MoDOT is receiving, you know, their budget is over double what it was just five years ago. They're receiving a ton of money with the gas tax, all this federal money. And there's projects, you know, interstate projects all over the state. I know a lot of the discussion has been over I-70, but my understanding is that there will be work going into I-44. And with all this federal funding, uh, you know, they're there's some flexibility in where it can go. And so I do think some of these projects that may have been vetoed will, will probably still happen in one way or another. They may not happen immediately, but uh, specifically the issues that were brought up, uh, the House tried to override and the Senate did not pick up. Those, at least as they were budgeted for, will not be happening. Right, and finally, before we move on and, and no one is held to their uh, projections here, but uh, there was a quote about the veto session from Lincoln Huff, and he called it an exercise in futility. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the the past session. The end of the veto session kind of closes the book officially on the 2023 legislative session. As we head into next year, there's a lot of other dynamics at play. It's a national presidential year, and I want to get all your thoughts on this. We'll start with you, Elias. Is there anything you can read into the fact that the veto session lasted three hours? I mean, just kind of what the the infighting, the temperament, the attitudes of these legislators. Is there anything you can read into that as we uh, we approach pre-filing? Well, I certainly don't think there is a very good relationship uh, between the House and the Senate, at least right now. So, you know, the, the House went through the effort of overriding, I think it was 14 uh, line items from the budget, and the Senate picked up zero of those. And um, in the short... Um, discussion on the Senate floor about, you know, the uh, overrides or, you know, what should be considered. Some of the things that were brought up, um, one by, I think, Senator Schroer and um, Senator Eigel were some issues for St. Charles, uh, or there was a, um, a facility that they were hoping would be built in O'Fallon. You essentially had these issues that they say were priorities that the House didn't pick up. So the, so the House overrided some vetoes the Senate had no interest in those in the things the Senate said that they had interest in the House didn't pick up. So if there's not any sort of, you know, um, working together there, you know, you're going to see, unless they can mend these fences, we're not going to see too much going into next year. And that's very worrisome when it comes to the budget, especially as you mentioned before, where 
this federal money is starting to you know kind of dry up and you're going to be needing additional um, accountability on uh, some of the spending that's out there's so much spending right now and you're going to need to be reining in the budget um, it's going to be much easier to rein in the budget if you can have some agreement between the chambers on these issues if not uh, i think we're going to have a long and probably frustrating uh, next legislative session what do you think david sign of things to come or are you not put too much stock in it i wouldn't I, I would put more stock in the last, the, the recently concluded legislative session as an indication of the next legislative session, since it's going to be the same, the same players, the same, the same officials. So I'm, I would expect more of the same there, but I don't put too much stock in trying to de- define the future from a, from a brief veto session. And Avery, it only lasted a few hours, <laughs> but your first veto session for the Missouri legislature, any, any thoughts, any takeaways? You know, I still have a little hope. Maybe it's I'm so young and naive, but I think the lack of anything in the 2023 session and it getting closed on the same note in the veto session that maybe they'll just face so much political pressure that it's like, okay, we have to do something in 2024. I mean, our constituents are going to go wild on us. So I'm just hoping maybe they see how literally we did nothing in 2023 and they're like, okay, we got to do something this year. So I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, I think Missouri went like decades in the '50s, '60s, and '70s without a without a veto over without a veto override. So it's nothing. They've happened far more frequently in the last fifteen or, or so years than they historically historically did. So I don't expect to go back to again decades without them. But there's nothing there's nothing historically unusual about one one staid veto session. Well, one thing you mentioned, David, that. Uh you wish had been vetoed a Senate Bill 190. And that's the law that lets different municipalities vote whether they want to freeze property taxes for seniors. And one of the largest counties in the state did that recently. So what's up? Well, right. So, right. It lets counties vote whether they're going to freeze property taxes for seniors. And it's not just freezing the county property tax, but it's all property taxes within that county. So for school districts, fire districts, cities, the county, library districts, on and on and on and on and on. So so it was authorized. St. Louis County, some officials there introduced it first, trying to be the first county to pass it, and it was rejected, thankfully, because it's a very bad idea. This is very, this might be good politics, it might be smart politics, but it's bad public policy to limit your tax base like this and benefit one group of people over the rest of the rest of the the community. So, I think Camden County in Lake of the Ozarks, that's the one of the main Lake of the Ozark counties. Uh, I think they were the first to pass this, and I'm intrigued by the thought of how many St. Louis County residents where it was rejected who have a a condo or home in Lake of the Ozarks, how many of them are going to change their primary residency now to the Lake of the Ozarks because you can only the taxes can only be frozen if you're over 62 and it's your primary residence that's nothing more than a change of voter registration for a lot of people so I, I'll be curious how many people do that Camden County was the first St. Charles County you know I think I think St. Charles County is now the fourth largest county in the state uh, they passed it uh, earlier this week uh, it's I don't know what to say I expect many other counties will do it and we will do the best we can to oppose it in as many counties as we can. The city of St. Louis has a bill on their agenda to do this in the city. Uh, Jefferson County had a resolution on it. I'm sure it's being heard in counties around the state. And it's just, no matter where it's being heard, it's bad. Like taking, 
It doesn't work. Limiting your tax base like this, benefiting a... You shouldn't play any group off against another, but you particularly shouldn't give a property tax freeze to the wealthiest group amongst amongst Missourians, which are, in fact, the senior population. 62 is way too young. That's more the fault of the legislature, not the counties. Uh, the fact that there's no means testing to it all is absurd. Again, that's more the legislator's fault than the county's. But it's just a bad, bad bill. I expect it will pass lots of places. I was delighted it failed in St. Louis County. Uh, hopefully it will fail lots of places too. It'll be a, it'll keep me busy for, for sure for the next year or so. Sure. And um, I think, so one thing we've heard it, from supporters of this is that, well, it's a, whether it's freeze or cut, we'll take it where we can get it. You know, it's, it's eventually it's lower taxes for someone we can get it. But I think an, an interesting point that you've brought up is that now there's this very active group of voters, senior citizens who are going to have frozen property taxes. Then they're going to be asked to vote on tax increases that they're not going to have to pay for. So do you think that this might actually make it easier for tax increases to pass? Absolutely. And this is one of the points I'm, I'm trying to make. And our testimony that we've submitted is available at showmeinstitute.org. Ab- absolutely. Now you're going to be going to a significant portion of the electorate and saying, do you want this new service? And oh, by the way, you don't have to pay for it. Everybody else will have to pay for it if you vote. So of course, people are going to start voting yes on more things now. Uh, it's it's the, the only question is the extent of that, but absolutely one of one of the benefits of property taxation compared to earnings taxes and sales taxes, which all have this element of we're going to make those other people, those outsiders, those tourists, those shoppers, we're going to make them pay for our stuff. With property taxes, people who own the the home or own the business, you know, they choose. This are the new services being proposed here. Are they worth the additional money I'm going to be asked to pay? So, you, you know, you've got skin in the game. And to break that connection by freezing the property taxes for seniors, which in the short term might not cost local governments a lot, but in the long run is absolutely going to significantly reduce the tax base in, in counties that pass this. And uh, when they go for tax increases to make that up and seniors aren't paying those tax increases, it's a, I think it, this is going to have absolutely the, un, the opposite effect that people want. This is, I truly believe this is going to, increase taxes for most Missourians. And that's why one of many reasons why it's a really bad bill. Well, and is there beyond just the pure tax implications, is there a concern on its impact on the real estate market in a, in a county like that, that it, um, people who senior citizens who otherwise would have moved to, uh, you know, downsize or moved to a condo are now going to put off that decision because their property taxes are frozen. So there's less housing available for, you know, younger families moving in. And so it kind of has a compounding effect uh, on housing. Absolutely. And we talk about that similar to what happened in California with Proposition 13. And that is discussed in in our testimony. now, Proposition 13 went much further than these bills are doing, so I want to make that that clear. But we will, I'm sure, see some type of effect of that, of, of seniors who would like living in a house on one acre and want to downsize to a condo. Well, they're not going to do that now, or they're going to do it much later because that new condo is going to have much higher property taxes because it will catch up on them when they purchase something new. So that's bad. When you have... Tax de- when you start making decisions like that based on taxes, that's not a good thing. We, Of course, taxes influence decisions, but you try to set up a system that limits this, and we're doing the, appos- the exact opposite uh, right here. We're intentionally setting up a system that will start to make people's influence people's choices and not in a good way. 
we'll keep an eye on this. And it sounds like that there's there's probably going to be several lawsuits, school districts, and so I, I think this story is probably far from over. We'll be talking about this one for years. I'm looking forward to it. All right, uh, to education. Avery, you have an interesting piece up at showmeinstitute.org, and it's about this idea of uh, student retention. Yeah. And a lot of states around the country um, are looking at this new method to help boost reading scores. So what are they doing for third graders specifically? Yeah, so DESE recently released the results of 2023 preliminary results, so it's not final, but it's preliminary. And... You know, I'm an optimist. I said it before earlier in this podcast, but I'm an optimist. I expect that our scores are going to go back up and get back to normal from before the pandemic. Like, I think that's a pretty reasonable expectation. In 2019, 49% of our Missouri students were proficient or advanced in English language arts or ELA. And COVID hit and all that chaos ensued. And you know, the score, we come to 2021 and our scores are 46%. It's like, okay, it's an expected drop, you know. We weren't ready for it. Our scores went down. But I expected the scores to go back up. In 2022 and 2023, now 44% of our students are proficient in ELA, proficient or advanced in ELA. How are our scores going down from all that chaos to now we're back in the classroom, the scores are still down? So with this in mind... I came across a policy that a lot of states are incorporating, and it's kind of getting some momentum. It's basically a mass third-grade retention policy. Basically, all third-graders at the end of their school year, they will take a standardized test to see if they are proficient in reading. So it's not a math, nothing else, just reading. Can the student read? And if they fail that and the two retest opportunities that they get, they will be retained in third grade. And... I know there's some drawbacks with holding kids back, and then there's a lot of positives that can be gleaned from this. And I think this is maybe something Missouri should look at. Sure. Um, And in your piece, you cite uh, another state, Mississippi, that has been using this program among other states. How's it going so far in Mississippi? So Mississippi is basically the gold standard for this type of program. They hold back between 4 to 10% of third graders, and which is like, that's a lot of students they're holding back. And they've seen their fourth grade scores rise up, but of course you're like, well, maybe there's some statistical stuff there. You know, I don't want to hear about the fourth grade scores, but the eighth grade scores have gone up a lot too. And particularly for low income students in Mississippi, the ones who traditionally struggle to read the most because, you know, they don't have any home support. It's, they usually make lower scores on the reading. And when they incorporated, before they incorporated this policy, they were 50th and 48th in reading and math. Today, following the implementation of that policy, they've moved up to 19th and 28th in 8th grade reading and ELA for low-income students. Like, that's a huge jump. They've seen good results. And reading is vital. I mean, it's what you build your foundation on for school. And not only that, but, I mean, we walk around society today, and it's maybe you, don't, you struggle reading. You struggle reading the lease. You struggle reading the, credit, the loan you take out or the credit card bill or a number of things like reading is vital and if you don't have a firm grasp on it you're going to struggle in school and it's going to translate to the real life as well and this policy is just about not passing on unprepared students like we want students to be as prepared as we can before we pass them on because you have to build a firm foundation and I think getting held back kind of gets surrounded with oh my child's stupid or something like that 
But, I mean, reading is not a natural human function. I mean, in 1820, only 12% of the world was literate. And today, 86% of the world is literate. Like, mass literacy is a new thing. Humans aren't hardwired to read. And sometimes it doesn't click. And giving a student another year of intense reading intervention can help them build a foundation because sometimes it just doesn't click. Sure. And I want to discuss some uh, details of some of these these programs before we talk about the concerns. So uh, there there are extra resources given to students that mm-hmm. are held back, retained, so you get additional tutoring. There are uh, exceptions made for students with disabilities, students who are uh, where English is not mm-hmm. their primary language. Um, so this is it, there is additional support offered. And I think an important note was the the max is two years, right? Yeah. You can you can only be um, retained for two years. But I want to talk about that brings us to the concerns. There are some cons to weigh for this, right? So so what are some of the drawbacks? Yeah, I mean, it's a very tough social situation. I mean, maybe. I'm weird, but I mean, I've have some of my best friends I've known since first grade, second grade, and it's like getting held back in third grade. I'm not saying that every school is like this and every student's like this, but I mean, a sixth and seventh grader, they're just probably not going to be friends anymore. I mean, you're not going to the same classes. You're probably not playing on the same sports teams. It's like you're basically forfeiting your friends, and that's a very tough social situation. And when you get held back, the older you get, there's a reason it's third grade and not eighth grade. I mean, you would get bullied incessantly as the stupid kid. I mean, kids are mean, and I can imagine how mean they would be to someone who's getting held back very old. So I personally, I'm a little on the fence for third grade. You know, third grade's a little old. I would like them to get it, hold someone back as early as possible. And I mean, holding someone back, it creates weird social situations and having someone who in Mississippi could be two years older, I mean, that's ripe for bullying. I mean, a huge, a kid who's two years older could easily pick on someone much younger than them. And it also just like can create very awkward social situations. So you could be an eighth grader driving to school or an 18 year old as a sophomore. And it's like, one of the concerns that comes with that is these kids are going to be uncomfortable and they're not going to do as well in school because they feel um, just not comfortable. And it's like one of the concerns is, oh, I'm 18, I'm a sophomore, I've struggled in school my whole life, I'll just drop out. Like, I, I'm done with this. But interestingly, Mississippi actually has the highest graduation rate they've ever had and it shot up since the implementation of this. So I guess them doing better is actually fought against that. But those are just some problems that can come from the policy. And it's worth wondering if should we make these social, should we bear these social situations for an improved and more prepared student body? I, I remember when the Simpsons were thinking about holding Bart back one year, and he was very, very concerned about it. But Homer looked at him and said, hey, you know, at least you'll be bigger than all the other kids. <laughs> there certainly are a lot of pros and cons to weigh. All right, and uh, one more thing before we wrap up. So one of the things we talk about here a lot, David Stokes, is the earnings tax. And uh, Dean Plotker is trying to make that a um, headline issue for 2024. And there's been a committee formed to look at the earnings tax. So what do we know? Right, there's a new interim committee on the earnings tax. They had their first hearing uh, uh, this past Tuesday in Jefferson City, right before veto session began. And I think this committee's terrific. I think it's great that we're they're looking into the earnings tax in Kansas City and St. Louis. And they're really looking at two aspects of it. Uh, one is the question of St. Louis 
insisting on taxing remote work as if you were in the city, which is just utterly and completely improper. And people have sued and they've won. The, the judge's decision was clear that the city has no right to do this. Of course, the city is appealing. As one alderman said, you know, we should appeal this for a thousand years. Uh, so very much hope that the legislature, one of the two things the legislator is talking about here is how do they clarify the law further to make it incredibly clear that the city, St. Louis City, cannot tax remote work, that people actually have to be in the city to pay the earnings tax. Interestingly, Kansas City, which operates under the same law as St. Louis, has chosen not to tax the remote work as by the earnings tax. And while their, their refunds have certainly increased since the pandemic started with more remote, remote work, one of the things they said at the hearing is that it really hasn't affected them their budget nearly as much as they feared at the beginning, as more and more people do go go back to work. The other aspect of the this committee, one that's going to be more focused on in upcoming hearings and dates aren't set yet, is just the overall issue of the earnings tax. And uh, so Show Me Institute, we just published a paper by Professor Howard Wall, an additional paper documenting on how documenting how the earnings tax reduces job growth and population in St. Louis and Kansas City. And so we very much hope he'll be able to attend one of these hearings. Uh, hopefully our chief economist, Professor Aaron Hedlund, will as well. There's, yeah, nobody says this is easy. And nobody says the earnings tax should be turned off overnight. But it's time to really, with the increase in remote work, hopefully the cities will view the earnings tax as not quite as dependable as they used to. And hopefully they'll get serious about about funding municipal services in a different way. Most cities, we can never say this too much, most cities do not have earnings taxes. Of the 100 largest metropolitan areas in America, uh, the central cities of, of only about 20 or 21, 22 of those metros has an earnings tax. Most outside of Pennsylvania and Ohio, and to a lesser extent Michigan and Kentucky, they're pretty rare. And, and we just, the cities, as tough as it might be, they need, they need to think long-term to increase job growth, increase population and wage growth in their cities, and and phasing out the earnings tax in favor of other ways to fund local services like most cities do would be wonderful. All right, Neil, there'll be plenty more on that, but uh, Howard Wall's paper up at showmeinstitute.org. Uh, all right, let's wrap up with what uh, you guys are going to keep track of over the next week. And Elias, I will start with you. Sure, so this past week, uh, it was released essentially the DESE budget requests. So the every state department needs to be filing those um, by October 1st. And so with the veto session, we had kind of the release of last year's uh, final budget data. And now we're trickling out the uh, next year's budget requests. And so uh, there'll be a lot to look for there because um, spoiler alert, DESE wants more money. I'm assuming everyone else does too. And so we'll have to kind of look into that a little bit more. Avery? Nuclear energy is getting a lot of momentum around the country, and especially in using recycled fuel to power plants. And we're, there's a lot of research and developments in that space. So I'm looking forward to seeing if Missouri can jump in and try to get in on that. And David? Closely following two uh, privatization issues, uh, although first of all down in Perry County where they're looking to privatize their hospital, and in Jefferson County, where Crystal City and Festus are looking to transfer, not, not really privatize, transfer their small municipal sewer system to the Jefferson County Public Sewer District. In both instances, these, there's nothing wrong with the, the basic 
changes here, uh, especially with privatization. I support that. But in both instances, they're really going about it the wrong way. Perry County has been incredibly secretive, not giving information to board members who are opposing the change, even though they are elected board members and they're being denied financial data to review it. It's crazy. And in Jefferson County, where they just sort of have made, they haven't passed it legally yet, but they've not taken open bids. They've not gone out and allowed other bidders to, to come in and say how much they'd be willing to pay for their municipal sewer system. They just are only allowing the Jefferson County Public Sewer District to be a part of this process. And it just doesn't, in neither case does it smell right. I mean, these types of changes in both cases could be very good things, but doing it in smoke-filled backroom deals. I don't know if we have so much smoke-filled rooms anymore. Uh, but the backroom deals without transparency, without openness, without public involvement is really just terrible Just terrible government. All right. Plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Uh, we do have an event coming up October 24th in the St. Louis area. We're going to have the economist Kevin Hassett. So more details on that soon at showmeinstitute.org slash events. Elias, Avery, David, thank you very much. Thank you.